Good afternoon and welcome to the City View podcast. I'm Andy Sylvester, editor at City AM. In a few minutes, I'll be joined by two superstars. First, our opinion editor, Sasha O'Sullivan, and second, Richard Hunter, head of markets at Interactive Investor. First, the corporate headlines, and all anybody's talking about today is Netflix's catastrophic day on US markets. As we record this, the streaming giant is down 35%, losing around $50 billion worth of value after a trading update yesterday. And you thought you had a bad day. Analysts were expecting a continued spike in subscribers. Instead, it fell. That number fell for the first time in a decade. Boss Class has moved pretty quickly today. The firm will launch a cheaper ad-funded version of its product capitalized on international markets. But the question is, however, will that be enough amidst the competition of Amazon Prime, Disney Plus et al., and others, amid a cost-of-living crisis that is making more and more people think significantly about each and every penny that disappears out of their bank account? Meanwhile, Rio Tinto has hiked its production guidance on all fronts for this year after wrestling with COVID-19 and lingering controversy. The scandal hit minor, which cut ties with Russia last month amidst its invasion of Ukraine, expressed to dish out around $8 billion in operations this year, according to first quarter results today. Minor has spent $168 million on exploration and evaluation the first few months of the year, some $10 million higher than a year prior. Shares fell slightly on the open. And current cannabis laws are not fit for purpose, according to one of Britain's top think tanks, as the country misses out on lucrative of revenues and wrestles with higher crime. Britain stands to gain billions each year should it adapt more liberal reforms such as the US and the Netherlands, according to researchers at the Social Market Foundation. Uh, the author of the Westminster Think Tanks reports that the UK's illicit cannabis market is estimated to be around 2 billion quid a year, currently in the hands of criminal gangs. And goodness me, wouldn't the Chancellor, Sasha, like to get hold of some of that cash? Sasha O'Sullivan, our opinion editor at City AM. Um, Sasha, we talk an awful lot about Rishi Sunak off air, so we thought we'd do it on air for a change. Um, usually, we're talking about how he's the sort of the king across the water, the man in waiting. If Boris Johnson ever gets bored of Number Ten, or if it's there's one scandal too many. Recent weeks, fair to say, some of the shine has come off uh, Dishy Rishi. Yes, so Rishi Sunak has had quite the fortnight and we're waiting to see, and it looks like he will, have the stomach to ride out the scandal so far after having facing questions over his wife's non-domicile tax status. He was then fined for having for going mm. to well, a let's be, vague let's be fair, event. Right? In, in, in his telling of it, he was walking to a meeting <laughs> and he just happened to pop into, and I can actually believe this, by the way, yes. popped into what he thought was just a normal meeting room during during working hours in the heart of the COVID-19 lockdown to find the Prime head Minister. bunting all over it. Um, the Prime Minister both having his cake and eating it. Um, Rishi says he, he did nothing wrong. Um, yes. Some off-the-record accounts from people close to Rishi suggesting that he... Uh, he was quite peeved to be mm. fined. Yeah, Sunak's team was incredibly shocked at the fine and they weren't expecting it. On all accounts, they were waiting for Boris Johnson to get fined and for Rishi to kind of swoop in after a week of quite significant pro- problems in his personal life. Mm, with the non-dom status, yeah. With it now turned into a very professional problem for him of is he actually lumped in with Boris Johnson on the rule breaking, which ultimately would be the scandal, well, mm. potentially to bring down the prime minister. Um and aside from that, he is he's had a tough time really since the spring statement mm. because people don't like Sunak when he's not dishing out huge of money, huge <laughs> yeah. amounts of money. 
it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we all we would always say that you know during the pandemic, the difficult time for Rishi will be when he has to stop playing Santa Claus and start playing the Grinch, mm. and that's true on the one hand. It's also been made worse for him by the fact that through a whole number of things, to be honest, many of which outside the Treasury's control, we're now looking at a cost of living crisis unlike that we've seen in 30 mm. odd years. And so far, the response has been either a tad tin-eared or technocratic. And from his perspective, he's saying, well, hang on, I bailed out the country on furlough. I gave an awful lot of literally millions of people basically a few months off on 80% of their pay putting the country into huge amounts of debt, do I have to do that again? And the answer politically, if you want to be popular, is probably yes. The answer economically is a bit more challenging. Mm. And look, I think if the cost of living crisis had come and there had not just been a pandemic, our attitude to it and our attitude towards Rishi Sunak would actually be one of looking at him as a very generous chancellor, Mm. someone who has cut fuel duty, someone who is willing to look at people's energy bills. If we take 2008 as a comparison, there, there weren't similar measures. There was there was a lot of focus within the treasury to ensure that the banks and thereby the rest of the economy didn't completely implode. Yeah. But from a consumer individual level, there was not as much help. And so I think that there there is this sense for Rishi, I can imagine him being quite frustrated because he is both trying to appease the backbench, which could potentially lose their minds mm. if he just keeps handing out cash and doesn't restore the Conservatives Party's main push of being one of fiscal responsibility. So he he really is stuck between a rock and a hard place as much as we say that and as much of a cliche it is. Yeah, he's almost like the boss who who spends he, he, he takes the team out on a on an office party or whatever, goes to the bar and everybody in the room gets used to the idea that that Andy or Sasha is buying the drinks all night. And then at some point it gets to about 10 p.m. and and you start looking at the bill and actually you'd rather go home. But you're kind of stuck there then because everybody gets annoyed when you stop buying the drinks. Like, oh, I can't yeah. believe they're not, you know, why are they cutting us off? And it's that's the sort of bizarre situation he's in where in fact the generosity so far means that he's now almost stuck with that reputation and he become it looks even more mean-spirited when he turns the tap off, which I think most economists would agree it was time to do. Um, just quickly, politically, looking ahead to the next general election and the broad, broadly moving out from Rishi Sunak to the wider Tory versus Labour row, which is what we do in British politics, um, the Tories are going to struggle. I mean, Steve Hawke said this, our columnist used to be at The Sun, knows his way around Westminster. The, the Tories are going to struggle to make a pitch on fiscal responsibility at the next election when, frankly, that they aren't necessarily being fiscally responsible. And when Labour can actually, without Jeremy Corbyn, without the, the, the Gordon Brown free spending era, actually probably make a case that they... It, it, it can't get any worse. Yeah, so Steve Hawkes was writing exactly this in our opinion pages, as you say, and the polls, incredibly, because the Conservatives have always been the party trusted to be the ones to steady the ship when things go slightly awry. Labour, in comparison, have been the ones to bring in big social reforms. They're not the ones we tend to look to for <laughs> fixing yeah. the fiscal situation. They're sharing the proceeds of growth, whereas the Tories are sort of trying to fix the free spending year and get us back on the track is the is the wide narrative. Exactly. And because the Conservatives have handed out so much money in a very Labour-esque fashion during the pandemic, the boundaries between the two parties have blurred. And so people 
increasingly a kind of looking to labor. Well, they're not necessarily looking to labor, but to put it this way, in June 2020, the conservatives had a 20 poll, 20 point lead over labor on who to be trusted on the economy. Mm. Yesterday, that was zero points. So they're now neck and neck for the same thing because people don't see the difference. They don't yeah. distinguish between the two parties' economic policies at the moment. Yeah, I mean, when you're being squeezed in every which direction, you're unlikely to thank the ruling party for it, right? Yeah. Um, Sasha, thanks so much for joining us. Um, as ever, uh, our opinion pages um, continue to be a shining light in the middle of the City AM. Tomorrow uh, you can read newspaper. about artisan cheese. Artisan cheese. That's exciting. A, a smorgasbord of political <laughs> thought um, on our opinion pages. Sasha, thanks so much. Um, well, now we're joined by changing gears slightly to global equity markets. Now we're joined by Richard Hunter. He's the head of markets at Interactive Investor. Uh, Richard, pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to be here. Why don't we just look at UK markets to start with? I guess UK equities to start with. If you had told an alien that amidst you know, a war on the European continent, decades high inflation, supply chains being, for want of a better phrase, gummed up, you wouldn't necessarily expect UK equities, at least, to be performing relatively well, but they seem quite resilient to me. And by the same token, I mean, you're absolutely right, of course, but by the same token, uh, they're seriously outperforming a lot of their global peers. Mm. Of course, the UK has been overlooked for a number of years now for, for any, any reasons ranging from Brexit to the fact that uh, certainly over the last couple of years, investors have been cha uh, chasing growth, and that has tended to mean that the likes of the NASDAQ have, in the States mm. have been on a tear. Whereas now, of course, in these rather more difficult times with any number of potential investor concerns, um, investors are looking for, for not so much a haven, but something that provides an element of defensiveness, um, inflation hedging, and exposure to uh, what have been burgeoning oil and commodity prices. Yeah. And all of those yeah. things can be found within the FTSE 100. So in some ways, the current situation uh, is actually playing into the hands of the FTSE 100, which, which has managed to post a gain of uh, just over 3% in the year to date. Yeah. And if you look at the US, I mean, what do you think is behind that? Because, you know, we were talking off air just before we 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 started recording this podcast about about those US indices, particularly the NASDAQ. I mean, obviously today, everybody's looking at Netflix as a particular example of one of these companies that has a very public brand and, and is a very exciting concept. But actually, when you look at the numbers, especially at the moment, starting to look like something you, you might be a bit wary on. What, what do you think is behind that NASDAQ fail in particular? Because I think, you, you, what was it? It's down this year, something in double digits? Just 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 shy of 13%, and it has been lower. I think it, it was probably kicked off towards the end of last year when investors decided it was time to rotate out of growth stocks and into value stocks because what they knew was coming this year uh, was a tough time with inflation. Mm. What they didn't necessarily appreciate was that uh, inflation is not proving to be transitory. Uh, it's proving to be um, rising to, as you mentioned, multi-decade highs. And so, in turn, it appears that the Federal Reserve is going to have to be rather more aggressive in terms of rise, raising interest rates to combat that inflation than, than had be previously been uh, expected. And I suspect, as much as anything else, it's the um, ability of the Federal Reserve to engineer a soft landing as opposed to putting the US economy into recession 
uh, which is really weighing on those US indices. Yeah, Joe, I was looking at the numbers for the German economy yesterday. Um, obviously, on this side, you know, still a global powerhouse economy, not a global driver, but still a decent sized economy. And it seems impossible to me that they, they avoid recession over the coming period, especially what's happening in Russia. The idea of a, a US recession, I think Goldman put the numbers at 35% earlier this week. That would obviously, how do you even deal with that as a, as a Federal Reserve? You know, it, it, you've been a little bit slow, I think it's fair to say. There was a degree of tightening. Yeah. But what are markets expecting the Fed to do this year? Just be more aggressive, but how aggressive, I guess, on a scale of sort of, you know, one to 10, a boxer walking into the ring and Muhammad Ali in, in Kinshasa. Like, where are we talking? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's probably a little too much rhetoric going on, even if we get to interest rates being at 3% by the end of the year or perhaps a, a tad higher. That's still low by historical standards. What is going to be difficult, whichever way you want to paint it, is to wean ourselves off the easy money environment that we've had for the best part of a decade, in fact, perhaps even more. And that's something where economies and indeed markets are going to have to stand on their own two feet. Unless we forget, of course, um, there are some of the, the younger traders uh, out there on both sides of the pond who have never seen anything mm. other than a, an easy money environment. So there will be a few shocks to the system to come. Um, the, diff the, the other difficulty for the Fed is that interest rate rises tend to take 12 to 18 months to wash through to the real economy. So it's going to be extremely difficult from an actual point of view for them to gauge what's going on. But what they will be able to see on a daily basis is how their moves are affecting sentiment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting. You're not the first person to talk about the fact that traders that, you know, these, as you say, these younger traders are seeing almost difficult times for the the first time. I mean, in the UK, you would have called Brexit a difficult time, you know, and immediately after June 2016. Yeah. But actually, that looks very much storm in a teacup territory at this point. Um, why don't we just have a quick have a quick look at, at earnings season? Pretty mixed so far. Um, yep, spot on. It's it's still early days. I think that there's only 50 or so of the 500 S&P 500 have reported. Although having said that, uh, about four-fifths of those have so far beaten uh, profit expectations. Admittedly, this is something Wall Street does on a quarterly basis, which is to talk expectations down. But in terms of uh, broad sectors, we have seen uh, some fairly tepid numbers from the US banks, which could be interesting because we're going to hear next week from all of the UK banks and there's usually uh, a read across and that's of course um, some of the cons consumer pressures that we've been facing without um, rising interest rates feeding through. On the plus side, uh, there's been a surprisingly strong performance um, in terms of reporting from the airlines in mm. states who are an anticipating the return of travel demand uh, coming up over the summer. And then it's a bit uh, early beyond that to establish establish too many trends. Uh, they have tended to be stock specific. Mm. Uh, one of their bellwether defensive companies, Johnson and Johnson, um, posted perfectly fine numbers. But then, as you mentioned earlier, we had the shock of Netflix, which of course mm. um, has done has done for the Nasdaq uh, yet again. It's it's also uh, there's quite a large tech influence in the S and P five hundred as well. So um, the next couple of weeks are going to be particularly important. I know we say this every quarter, but <laughs> the fact of the matter is uh, that given the current cocktail of concerns, we've got to be looking to where the next positive 
catalyst might come from. And it had been hoped that perhaps the first quarter uh, earnings season would provide that. We shall see. Yeah, we shall see indeed. Richard, absolute pleasure. A bit of a whistle around the global market scene, but um, always a pleasure. And we'll, we'll certainly speak to you soon. Absolute pleasure too. Thank you very much. That was Richard Hunter. He's head of markets at Interactive Investor. And from me and all of us at CityM, that's all from us on today's City View podcast. We'll be back as usual tomorrow, 5 p.m. Set your diaries. <laughs>